Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much uh, for the birthday wishes, and uh, keep in mind, you know, uh, we've gotten here, we're almost a year of doing the, these calls. That, to me, has been by far the best gift I could ever have of working with colleagues such as you, such as Dr. Zellman and many others who have joined us, and to our listeners. Um, you guys are more than listeners. You're the community leaders, the community advocates, taking this information, disseminating it out, getting to the people that you need to to help promote health and prevent disease. You all have been saving lives countless times in this pandemic. So I cannot thank you all enough for being those frontline individuals. With that said, what I'm going to do for the next few minutes, jump into these numbers like we usually do. I have a special segment I'm going to be introducing starting today. And then a brief overview of just the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Their FDA paperwork was released on Wednesday. Uh, and it is being reviewed today. The date is set for February 26, 2021. So I've looked through these 62 pages, and I'll provide you a very brief update, and then we'll go to Dr. Zanelman. So let's jump into the numbers. Where are we globally? There are 113,681,055 COVID-19 cases. Global deaths at 2,521,729 giving us a mortality rate of 2.2% globally. Here in the U.S., 29,055,072, with deaths at 520,877, giving us a mortality rate in the U.S. of 1.8%. And here in the state of Maryland, 380,436 cases, with deaths at 7,656, with a mortality here in in the state of Maryland at 2%. The new addition I'll be adding is the fully vaccinated category for the U.S., fully vaccinated. Vaccines here in the U.S. to individuals uh, confirming fully vaccinated, meaning since we just have Moderna and Pfizer, they've received both shots. In the U.S., we have 20,607,261 fully vaccinated, giving us about 6% of the U.S. adult population. And here in the state of Maryland, How many are fully vaccinated? 403,542, giving us an adult population percentage of 6.7%. So more work is needed ahead in order to help us end this pandemic. And today, hopefully one of those will be a third vaccine, Johnson & Johnson's version. So let me give you a brief insight into the data that has been being revealed. The first is, well, is it good? How effective is it? What is the vaccine efficacy? And to our listeners, the 28-day uh, ability for this vaccine to prevent severe critical COVID-19, that would be life-threatening COVID-19, at 28 days, it was found to be 85% effective. If you break this down by age groups, 18 to 59, 92% effective. Those 60 and older, it was 70% effective. In regards to deaths in the research group, 
two deaths in the placebo arm, zero deaths in the COVID-19 group. Now, in regards to, by the way, how many people were recruited, about 40,000 individuals. I always like to mention the most well-researched COVID-19 interventions happen to always be our vaccine groups. So that is great. In regards to a few other breakdowns that I think most people will be interested to hear about, did they recruit people that look like individuals being disproportionately ravaged by COVID-19? And the answer is yes. In regards to those with pre-existing conditions, 41% of the patients recruited for this trial had one or more pre-existing condition. What about demographic data? This is great. Actually, this is by far much better than Moderna and Pfizer's in regards to recruiting patient populations that are being ravaged disproportionately by COVID-19. African-Americans, remember Moderna and Pfizer was about 10% both studies. This trial by Johnson Johnson, quote, uh, 17%. What about Hispanic Latinos? Well, in the Moderna and Pfizer, remember, about 24, 25% respectively. In the Johnson & Johnson, 45% Hispanic Latinos were recruited. Much of this, of course, has to do with the fact that about 47% of the patients came from the U.S., 41% came from Latin America, and then the rest came from uh, the country of South Africa. So what I take from this vaccine trial uh, with the data published is that by far, from a health equity standpoint, it is, in my opinion, uh, great, right? It recruited patients that look like the real-world patients being ravaged by this virus um, in real time, one. Two, the data of a one-shot vaccine is incredibly promising. It might not be at the level of Moderna and Pfizer, but keep in mind those 94 95% efficacies, those are like the extra credit students. This great tool to have in the toolbox to help us end this pandemic. And finally, adverse reactions, I forgot to mention those, because they get asked all the time, the number one adverse reaction 50% of the time was sight pain. So where the needle went in, one out of two people had pain there. The second most common adverse reaction was a headache, about 39%. And after that was fatigue, 38%. So what I'm excited about the study, health equity, clearly on display, efficacy, clearly on display, with a lot of benefit and minimal adverse reaction. So I'm excited to hear what our colleagues at the FDA um, and the government have to say, but hopefully we get the clearance for a third vaccine today, one that is made here out of Baltimore, and we have another tool in the toolbox. And with that, I think it's a great way to transition to Dr. Jonathan Zettelman, an infectious disease specialist, world-renowned, who has tackled other global crises, and, you know, I, I imagine he wasn't envisioning a pandemic to kind of help be part of his uh, uh, career uh, near the final or near the kind of the silver linings of his career, but here we are. Dr. Zentelman, are you here? Yeah. Hi, Panagis. Uh, I'm here. Go ahead. Perfect. Perfect. So, Dr. Zentelman, I, I, I brought and up and some... I'm, and I'm pleased to be here again with the group. As we know, I've done this about every month or so since the pandemic started, and I've really enjoyed uh, working with everyone here. Oh, Dr. Zentelman, uh, your enjoyment is only matched by ours. I can tell you, you have a fan base of listeners. Um, Kimberly and I always joke, maybe it's the Kimberly, Dr. G, and Dr. Zentelman Joe show. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. 
doctors, gentlemen, actually, before we ask some of the questions we're going, we're going to pose, and do you have any immediate thoughts on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Well, actually, I'm actually, you know, the FDA hearing, as you mentioned, is today, and I'm actually watching it online. They haven't presented the data yet, um, but I've seen also the briefing document. You know, I think one of the messages that were, you know, obviously people, you know, this vaccine is going to be a little bit different, as you mentioned, than the Pfizer and Moderna, um, but there are a couple of things which, I think we should consider. One is the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines both require storage at very low temperatures and also require two shots. Uh, the J&J &J vaccine, J&J &J and Janssen are the same vaccine, it's the same company. J&J uh, &J vaccine requires a single dose, which is actually a significant advantage, for, especially for people who are hard to get, and also uh, the storage requirements are that it does not have to be frozen. It can be kept at standard refrigerated temperature uh, for about, you know, for several weeks, which actually significantly increases uh, the ability to deploy this. So this vaccine may be much, may be useful compared to the others in places where maintaining ultra-cold temperatures uh, is a problem. Uh, in Baltimore, we are, we're lucky because we have a couple of major institutions who have access to these freezers, uh, and everybody lives within a couple of miles of Hopkins, Maryland, or other major clinical sites where this can be offered. But, for example, the Johnson vaccine may be very useful in rural areas or in places where it's very hard to maintain a cold chain. The message that we are, however, providing is, as you mentioned, you know, this vaccine is still pretty effective, and people sometimes get lost in the weeds, you know, um, looking at, you know, minor differences between these. Uh, our, basic, our basic message is at the current time, if you have opportunity to take any of the approved vaccines, assuming that this one also will be approved by the end of the day today, if you have the opportunity to get any approved vaccines, you should take advantage of the opportunity. No, perfect, Dr. Zunman. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, good to know that uh, you, like many physicians and scientists, uh, we multitask. So we'll keep the briefing one. It is one on my TV as well. So um, I, I, I love it. So, Dr. Zunman, my one question to you, we've tackled it several times, but I want to hear from your thoughts as well. Um, actually, and I sit back as a fanboy as well. The mutations, and we, we recognize it's part of the biology of the virus we do. Are any of the mutations gaining the attention of a, a prestigious infectious disease doctor such as yourself or any of them <laughs> rising to your concern? So tell us about your thoughts. Sure. So I think um, there's a lot of uh, press and there's a lot of um, concern over the mutations. Uh, the mutation, and you may see this also in the press, is called variants. When we think about variants and mutations, uh, for our purposes, they should be considered as synonymous or the same. Uh, in fact, I just heard of the CDC, uh, as part of this FDA hearing today, the CDC people presented for about 35, 35 40 minutes on the variants and the concern about it. The basic, story, the basic messaging on this is, uh, is the following. One is uh, viruses mutate all the time, and the fact that these are occurring is not surprising. 
Uh, for example, the reason we have to get a flu vaccine every year is because the, flu, the influenza virus mutates uh, and it changes from year to year. For COVID, the level of mutation is not anywhere near what it is in flu. Nevertheless, we are concerned about these and uh, what the very and the concern about the very <clears throat> the concern about the variants is that it changes uh, the variants that we're concerned about change these or the mutations and these mutations occur spontaneously all the time just by the nature of the virus replicating itself. If the variant changes the spike protein, which are when you've seen these pictures of the virus, it's those red protrusions. Those red protrusions. Uh, are, are the spike protein. They are involved in attaching the virus to our cells and causing infection. They are also the target of the vaccine. So the vaccines target the spike protein. So the, the mutations, the variants that we're seeing that are concerning uh, have changes in the, in the virus which allow it to infect more easily. So in, so in other words, they increase the transmissibility of the virus, or if, another way of putting it, if you are unmasked and not socially distanced and you're in contact with somebody who has the variant, the, the variant that we're concerned about, if under normal circumstances your infection probability would be, let's say for argument's sake, 20%, with a variant that may be 40 or 50%. So it increases the transmissibility, which is the key, key concept here. On the other hand, the way to prevent this are, is the same. So if everybody's masked and distanced, the variant's transmissibility is reduced uh, by over 90% and therefore is not a problem. So the variants are a problem when people are not following our, socially, our social distancing and masking guidelines. Second question that comes up, are the vaccines effective against these variants? And it, all the data that we've seen to date show that they are. So the variants are, uh, the current vaccines are protective against the variants. It turns out uh, that uh, anticipating a potential problem that we hope doesn't happen, the vaccine people, the vaccine manufacturers, have already developed vaccines against the variants just in case. So we may, so they could be in the form of a booster shot, but that's just uh, in, the, uh, in case we need to. Uh, we have not seen any problems with this. The third question occurs is are the vaccines, do the vaccines impact the diagnostic testing? And the answer is no. Uh, and the fourth question is, is the, the vaccine, did the variants result in more severe disease? Let's say, for example, if you got infected by a variant, does it make you sicker than it would if you got standard or the current circulating strains? It appears that some of the South African variants, which are not seen in large proportion in the United States, uh, may do that. That's actually questionable. But in large, you know, for, for the most part, this does not seem to be a problem. Uh, because the variants are more transmissible, uh, we do expect that there will be more and more of a problem in the United States simply because they will account for more and more of the strains that are circulating, and especially the one that's concerned. This is just for an academic point, something that's called the UK variant, which is also known as B117. That's just a designation which is used for the variant that was seen primarily in the United Kingdom and in Great Britain, which is now seen 
uh, in large parts of the United States. No, thank you, Dr. Zellman. So from my standpoint, I'm going to be taking some peace of mind. Is, is that fair to say? Uh, you know, we'll keep a close eye, but um, peace of mind right now? Can you, yes. can you conclude to that? Okay. Yes. If you got it, you know, if people continue to get, if, uh, if you're vaccinated or trying to get vaccinated uh, and you're doing the things that we're recommending now anyway, which is masking and distancing, uh, the variants are not going to be a major impact. So, Dr. Zumman, I'm going to ask you a question that Dr. Fauci was asked, I think, about 24 hours ago, and I saw it being played on some uh, media outlets. Just to hear your thoughts, not to put you on a spot, and I fully recognize that there isn't data to support this. And Dr. Fauci said there's no data, but potentially some common sense. Two people fully vaccinated, what do you think? Can they get together, hang out without the hygienic interventions, or how would you recommend that? I would say, that, you know, is this in the context of Dr. Fauci asked whether he can hug a family member? Because I heard, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. So he was asked yeah. if two people fully vaccinated can get together. And I, we fully recognize, Dr. Zunnerman, there is no data to support the answer. Yeah. So your thoughts on the biological plausibility of what this sure. would mean? So here, here um, and obviously I don't want to be, I hope I'm not going to be contradicting Dr. Fauci, who, as you all know, is the oracle. Um, but... This is the way I've looked at this, and this is the way I advise some of my family members. <clears throat> the, if you're vaccinated, and if the person that you're going to be meeting is vaccinated, uh, you are protected at a very high level from becoming sick with COVID, uh, becoming symptomatic, and becoming sick with COVID. Essentially, it reduces the rate down to almost zero. The concern is, and this is where we do not have the answers yet, is whether you can become asymptomatically infected, whether you can become almost a carrier at a very low level and potentially transmit it to somebody else. So if I am with, let's say if my cousin is fully vaccinated and I've, gotten, I've been asked this question, can I go to her house and be unmasked and so forth? If I am not in contact with anybody who's susceptible and she is not in contact with any susceptible, anybody susceptible, I feel perfectly fine uh, with that situation, including giving her a hug. On the other hand, if she is taking care of an elderly uh, aunt or, uh, you know, or grandmother uh, who has not been vaccinated yet, I would be, there would be some concern because there is a theoretical risk that I could be asymptomatically infected, tra transmitted to her, and she could transmit it to somebody outside of the loop who is actually at risk for disease. That situation has not been fully worked out yet, and therefore, uh, if somebody's in contact with other folks, especially susceptible, I would advise to keep everything, you know, keep the social distancing, but if you're in your own if you're if you're in your own bubbles, then I see then I I think that would be okay. So, uh, Dr. Zunnelman, uh I'm going to put it this way: Dr. Fauci did not contra contradict you. He he said uh, the same thing along those lines. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Fauci, uh, ladies and gentlemen, said the same thing Dr. Zunnelman did. So, and and, and I recognize it, it's hard sometimes as physician scientists we rely on clinical experience, we rely on data. Right now in this world of a pandemic, both of those 
are not present uh, at, at a pace that we would like them to. So we have to just rely on biological plausibility and, and caution. And, and I, I appreciate that, Dr. Zettelman. The, the cautionary tale can't be underestimated, and that's how every physician operates. We live with this credence of do no harm. And so that's the reservation you will always hear in our tone where we green light to some extent, but stay reserved if, as you said, Dr. Zellman, if you're caring for individuals of high risk and they themselves have not been vaccinated. Right, and I, I think I want to, I also want to get me emphasize something that we've said all along, that the only thing predictable about this pandemic is the unpredictable unpredictability and our guidance will change as we learn more. That guidance may change in, uh, you know, you know, in a couple of months because all of the major vaccine trials that are underway are asking this question is, does this do these prevent against asymptomatic infection? And that's something that there's tremendous interest in knowing about uh, for reasons which are obvious. Right. Welcome back from break. Uh, nope. Thank you, Dr. Zellman. And it sounds like we can even hear uh, in the background of the, the uh, yeah, television yeah, they just, program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Perfect. I just, Perfect. I'll put it on hold. For oh, no worries. No worries. I'm, I was just emphasizing we're multitasking. I, I love it. I love it. In real time, <laughs> if you see anything that pops up of approval, let us know in real time. It's great. Okay. Here's my next question, Dr. Zellman, one that we get asked often, and maybe you can shed a little bit light. Pfizer went 16 and older, Moderna 18 and older, Johnson and Johnson also 18 and older. Our children, talk to us. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some insight about the pediatric sure. vaccine trials? And especially sure. also to our listeners, why this can be a little bit more time-consuming for recruitment versus, say, the adult. Sure. So um, let me also anticipate that question with an easier answer for kids, and that's pregnant women. Uh, so, and, and, you know, and partners of pregnant women and women who are thinking about becoming pregnant. Uh, for women who are thinking about pregnant, becoming pregnant, or partners of uh, women who are thinking about being pregnant, or, uh, or who partners of pregnant women themselves, no problem at all with the vaccine. Uh, pregnant women, similarly, uh, this is a question now, this is an issue now, which there, there's some preliminary data in pregnant women, which, which actually indicates that the vaccine is not only safe, but also probably confers protection uh, to the newborn baby for a couple of months, which is really important. And many places are offering vaccines now to pregnant women. In fact, I have a daughter and daughter-in-law who are both pregnant, and they are going to get it. Uh, it hasn't been approved yet for them, uh, but, both, but, the, uh, but Pfizer and Moderna are standing up very large studies in pregnant women, which have already started, to ask the question, uh, is it fully safe? Uh, and we'll have those data within a couple of months, and I anticipate this will be approved. So, uh, and in fact, other parts of the world uh, have actually already started to vaccinate against for pregnant women. And the reason why this is important is because if a pregnant woman gets COVID, and I'm sure, Dr. G, you've seen this. If a pregnant woman gets COVID, the disease in a pregnant woman is actually more severe than in a similar than a woman who is of similar age. So that's so that so that's actually one of the reasons why this is really important. Let's get to Dr. Zellman. Uh, if I can interrupt, I, I want to actually reaffirm that. Uh, in um, back in December, I cared for uh, a patient I'll never forget. We had to put her on uh, ECMO to our listeners, ECMO. Um, because of uh, just uh, the direness of the situation as she was pregnant. So 
it, it's a case that I will never forget, so thank you for sharing that, Dr. Zellman. Yeah. It, it's important to our listeners. Back to you. Sorry, sir. So, so let's get the kids. Uh, there's a couple of these. First of all, when, we do, when vaccines are first developed, children are usually the last group to look at, and uh, for, for reasons which are fairly obvious. One is we want to make sure that these are safe and effective in adults before we uh, look, ask the question, what happens in children? Because children, because they're developing, are much more susceptible to side effects if they occur. The second, the second issue uh, for children is that uh, we know that although children can become infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, when they get infect infection, for the most part, is overwhelmingly mild. There are these severe cases which occur in kids, uh, but overwhelmingly the disease is much more mild in children, uh, and therefore uh, they are, uh, you know, uh, there's, uh, it hasn't been as urgent as it, ha as it has been for other age groups. Obviously, on the other hand, there's tremendous need looking forward to vaccinate kids, especially when we think about schools and things like that. So Pfizer actually enrolled down to 12. Pfizer and Moderna are now standing up studies, each of over a 1,000 uh, subjects in each, uh, to look at asking the question, looking at safety in children down to the age of two. And there actually may even be some newborns, uh, some studies in younger kids moving after that. Uh, these studies are going to be done asking, you know, are they going to be enrolling children uh, under very controlled circumstances, very closely observed, giving uh, a smaller dose of vaccine in some cases than in the adults. And they're asking the question, uh, does, is the vaccine safe? Uh, and is the, and we anticipate it will be, uh, because we haven't seen any major problems in the adults. And does it generate the appropriate immune response? Obviously, the, the, the challenges in enrolling children is that, uh, you know, children have to be, uh, children cannot, children have to be enrolled with their parents. And basically, uh, there's two people who need to agree to the study. One is the parent uh, or legal guardian of the child. And second is actually, in almost all cases, when it, you know, down, you know, when a child can understand, the, the research, uh, the research oversight committees require that children uh, do what's called an assent, which is, means after the parent consents, then the researcher asks the child, "Do you understand what's going on here, and do you agree to this?" Um, even though he or she cannot legally consent, they have to agree and understand based on their level of comprehension, their age, their school, and stuff like that. Uh, so the enrollment process is much more complicated. Uh, we are, the, there is a trial that is going to be starting up at the University of Maryland, which is going to be uh, um, being um, enrolling children. I think this is, these are really important, and it is an opportunity for kids to get vaccinated. It's also a really important trial because this is going to determine how uh, the vaccine is given to kids. And I think, you know, in, in terms of the oversight and management and structures that are in place to make sure these are safe, I feel absolutely comfortable doing this. And if actually I had a child, I would feel comfortable doing this. In fact, in fact I recently found out uh, you know, I'm 65. My wife and I are both 65, and um, 
Actually, I had measles as a kid when I was three, but I found out recently that my wife was actually in, a, in one of the original measles uh, cl clinical trials back in 1959. Uh, obviously, research oversight was a little bit different then, but she's felt pretty good about it. So anyway, so I, I think this is something to look out for. We should see these trials completing enrollment uh, by midsummer, and we may have results by the fall. Once that occurs, uh, I think we will see widespread vaccination in kids. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Zunnelman. So both of these, like the comments are on the mutations and the vaccines for children, and you've already anticipated a question as well with women who are pregnant. It, it, it is incredibly meaningful. Um, I, I see this because these are the hardest questions at the moment that we're are all being posed with and challenged with of how to help out these other populations that are harder to recruit and so forth. So thank you for that. I think we have some questions coming in from the community. Kimberly, do you want to fire off? A, I have one last one, but let's get to the community questions first. And then I, if there's time, I'll ask my last question to Dr. Zellman. Over to you, Kimberly. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. G and Dr. Z. So um, lots of community questions coming in, and thank you for that. So the first one is, will the COVID-19 vaccine be updated or changed each season similar to the flu vaccine? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, and uh, I'll give uh, there's, there's, there's an answer on a couple of levels. One is, um, you know, it looks like so far, and this is just based on what I mentioned when talking about the variants, that we don't need to update the vaccine every year. However, if we do see the need uh, because a major change in the variant, then we will have that available. But that's something which so far we don't think that we will need to do. The second part of that question is, uh, will we need booster shots? Uh, so the flu vaccine is a new vaccine every year. Uh, for COVID, we're also concerned, does the immunity you get from the vaccines, how long does that last for? We know it lasts now for six months, and we know the immunity is actually a higher, a higher level than what you get from having COVID itself, from natural infection. Uh, the reason we don't know if it's more than six months is because we haven't, that's all, that's the length of time we've been, we've been able to follow people. Uh, the trials are being followed for, for at least two years, and as we learn more about that, we may make uh, additional recommendations uh, as we, you know, uh, moving forward. So there could be a situation where in a year or two, we will see the need for a booster or not, or we may not. So, uh, but that's something which we cannot predict. Great, thank you. So the next one, um, could we potentially see a vaccine combination to fight both the flu and COVID-19? <laughs> um, so a combo shot. That's actually, um, I, my sense is that, in, you know, in practice that probably won't happen simply because when, when you start combining vaccines, uh, and this is done with children, obviously, when they get combo, but, you know, uh, but this is a little bit different. Uh, when you start combining vaccines, you have to worry about um, some of the chemistry. Do they interact with each other? Can they be mixed together and so forth, as well as uh, the seasonality. A flu is a very seasonal vaccine. We want to start giving it the end of September and have everybody vaccinated by the beginning of December. COVID so, you know, is not 
is not right now a seasonal shot. So therefore, there may be, uh, you know, and also you have different, there's different manufacturers for flu vaccines and different manufacturers for COVID vaccines. So I think the logistics of doing this are going to be, you know, going to be hard. So essentially what I'm saying is we're going to be getting multiple needles in our eye. Thank you so much. I think um, just on the next question. So um, what is being added to the newer COVID vaccines, Moderna and now Johnson & Johnson, that allow them to be handled and stored in a more user-friendly manner? Should we be concerned? No, actually, this is, and actually the Pfizer one is doing the same thing. Um, this has to do with the underlying chemical stability of the, uh, of the materials that are in the vaccine. So there's no reason, so, so, so the, way the, the, way the, um, uh, the way the manufacturing works is they actually develop the vaccine and they see if it, you know, what the stability requirements are at different temperature levels. Pfizer, you know, J&J &J was lucky in that their materials were, uh, were are stable at normal freezer temperature in the refrigerator. Uh, Pfizer, because it's a genetic material, is very, very unstable after it's thought out for, for a certain period of time. What they do then is they see can they do minor modifications to either the, the compound, you know, either the uh, components of the vaccine itself or minor or minor um, or minor changes to the actual genetic material itself. They're not major chemical changes. And finally, everything that they do is reviewed by the FDA. They have to show certain levels of stability and safety. So um, I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this. Um, but there's I, I have no concern about safety or being concerned about this because it's high, it's a highly regulated environment. In fact. One of the clinical trials that the Pfizer people are doing are looking at comparing the immune response in different lots of the vaccine. So stuff that's made in Europe compared to stuff that's made in Michigan. So these are very highly regulated. Thank you, Dr. Z. Um, and then and the next question is uh, very interesting because um, I've actually got asked this a lot um, as people wonder if they could call like different pharmacies and such for the end of the day because they heard that huh. if there's cancellations um, that, you know, vaccination, the vials would be thrown away. So this particular question um, kind of addresses that. Since the first two vaccines require storage at a colder temperature, does the effectiveness decrease while the vials um, are sitting out of storage temperature for a while? So is it true? that they, they are um, discarded um, at the end of the day if there's any left over. Yeah. yeah, so they have very strict, so they have very strict requirement, you know, guidelines on how long they could be kept at refrigerator temperature or room temperature. Uh, during, if, if you're within those windows, which are clearly defined, there's no change in uh, in the effectiveness of the vaccine. But the point that you make, that you make is actually once it's thought out, there's a limited shelf life. And most of the vaccine um, sites do not want to keep vaccines overnight uh, after they've been thought out. So the point that you raise is really important. And in fact, I know of people who have actually been in contact with the vaccine sites to find out if there's 
openings at the end of the day uh, because the vaccine sites would much rather inject people than throw the material away. Um, I've heard, for example, that, this, that the large vaccine up at the, the large site at the Timonium Fairgrounds, and probably we're going to see this replicating at the M&T Stadium site, uh, has had a has had occasions where uh, they've had you know multiple people you know they have they're they're very uh, where people have missed appointments or did not show up for the appointments and they have the vaccine available and therefore if you can find I'm not sure how to do this but if you can uh, contact them at the end of the day or be within a reasonable just show up there at the end of the day you may be lucky uh, so I think obviously the vaccine rollout is not you know, this is not the way we should be doing vaccine rollout, but this is the reality. And I think uh, using these opportunist opportunities, uh, you know, can increase your likelihood of getting a vaccine. Thank you so much, Dr. Z. And I have one other question for the community. And, and then one question I like to ask fast on a number of calls I get. Um, but when you talked about the, um, the study, do you have any information on how to enroll a child into the study or any resources that maybe I could send out after the call? Um, well, why don't you ask me the next question? I'll see okay. if I can look it up. I know they, I know they have it. I know they have a back. I know they have a website. Okay, great, thank you. And uh, so my question is, um, I've gotten a number of calls, and I'm just wondering what your advice is on this. With older adults that are, you know, over 65 that are trying to make an appointment um, to get vaccinated, they don't have access to a computer. They aren't able to make phone calls regularly to check to see. Do you have any advice for those that are really struggling um, that are yeah. eligible to get an appointment? Yeah, I think this is an enormous problem. And as I speak from the standpoint of having a... Uh, a, fortunately, having a, a mother-in-law who's 90 years old, and although she lives in independent living, I know, you know, she was good with computers at some time, but is you, you know, she's not as good as she used to, and these can be very confusing. Um, my sense is that, you know, uh, and calling on the phone can also be very frustrating. I am aware that there are community groups that have actually have really uh, enlisted younger people to help older folks navigate these systems. And I think this is an important, you know, obviously, you know, I think that's an important resource that we should, we should be identifying uh, volunteers, uh, young folks who are very computer savvy, who can help our older uh, family members, neighbors, uh, and community members get through this. Because I think that's the only, you know, I think that's my sense that the current situation, that's the best solution. Excellent. Dr. Zellman, um and again, if, if and, you're unable and, to... Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sir. And actually, um, what I would do is right now the um, University of Maryland, the ensemble study is... Let's see. Yeah, there's... I would constantly... Uh, uh, ensemble study is um, uh, well. If you want, Dr. Zunman, we uh, I know Kim, but we asked uh, the community yeah, asked yeah, you a I, great I'll, question. I'll, I'll send you. I'll, yeah, I'll send you yeah. afterwards. Yeah. S send away. Send away. I'd like to end on. This is the last question, Dr. Zunman, and we always thank you 
your, your the rapid fire uh, community questions that I know is meaningful to our listeners to make sure they are getting their answers in real time so they can help their community. I want to ask one last one. So we today we might have our third. Are there any vaccines on the horizon that you're excited about that may also be coming in the next few weeks or months from AstraZeneca oh, yeah, to yeah. others? There's, yeah, so we have, uh, so this is the Janssen, which is a different mechanism compared to the um, to the Pfizer and Moderna. Um, I think actually many of you, may, you may have seen in the paper two things which I think are important. One is the mayor, and I, I actually, you know, give him a lot of credit, you know, uh, approached the company and said, will you sell directly to us? And, uh, I, you know, the, apparently that, that goes against a whole bunch of, uh, you know, the way these things are set up, but I really applaud him for doing that. Uh, the vaccine has been, the reason for that is the vaccine is actually made uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a factory, which is right behind Johns Hopkins Bayview on, on Lombard. Uh, it's the Emerging Biosolutions, uh, which is a contract manufacturer which is making this stuff. Um, there is another vaccine. Uh, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine has still not come up for approval in the United States. It has been approved in Europe. My sense is they may be focusing on Europe, uh, but they have completed a large clinical trial in the United States. I anticipate we'll see that in a couple of weeks. That is also a two-dose vaccine. Uh, there's a third, a third additional vaccine called Novavax, uh, which is a so uh, Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna are RNA vaccines. Janssen and um, and, and um, AstraZeneca are a different type of vaccine. They're called um, uh, viral vector vaccines. Essentially, they use an inactive virus to get the uh, RNA into our cells and make the spike protein. Uh, and the third group is Novavax, which is what we call a protein vaccine. This is a, where instead of having us make the proteins, the protein's already made and is injected into us. This is very similar to the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, the, uh, the Novavax trial has been completed. We'll probably see this come before the FDA in a couple of weeks. The important part of all of these vaccines, because of the Operation Warp Speed uh, program, which was developed under the former administration, and they did do a couple of things right. You know, uh, we have, you know, there's plenty to be critical in the prior administration, but this is one thing that they did right. Uh, what they did was, as the clinical trials were underway, they contracted out for manufacturing of 100 million or more doses of each of these vaccines. With the idea is, with the idea if the vaccine is approved, it can be deployed very rapidly. So, for example, if Janssen gets approved today or tomorrow, we may see vaccine out on the street within a week or two because it's already been manufactured and available, which is from a public health standpoint is great. So we are seeing additional vaccines in the pipeline, and this is also one of the reasons why as these vaccines roll out, uh, we can see increased coverage uh, and availability of vaccines if it's handled right at the state and local level. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Zenelman. So ending with optimism, enthusiasm, love it. So Kimberly, you know, the, the, the Kimberly, Dr. G, and Dr. Z show looks like it's winding down. Over to you, my friend. 
um, to bring us to a close. Thank you. Uh, so thank you, Dr. G and, and Dr. Zentelman. Um, I appreciate both. Um, such wonderful information shared today. And uh, I will follow up with you, Dr. Z, um, to get that resource on the child study. So thank you very much, um, both of you. And I hope you have a wonderful birthday, Dr. G. Um, and before thank I... You. Sorry. Did you have any other comments? Oh, no. I was just thanking you. That's all. Oh. Okay. Panagis, can you can you can you uh, can you actually uh, enlighten us in how you say happy birthday in Greek? So in the Greek culture, you just say chronia pola. Chronia sounds like chronos, just means many. Uh, it means um, many, and pola many uh, means years. So many years, and it's actually a thing you can use for anything. If you're celebrating a birthday, to celebrating an anniversary. Uh, or even celebrating a holiday, people just tend to say chronia pola, uh, many years. So kind of the many years uh, to be blessed upon you. So chronia pola, that's how you would say it. Okay, great. Thank you. No worries. All right, Kimberly, Greek cultural lesson 101. Now over to you, my friend, to end us. Gracias. I'm moving to Espanol. Before I turn the call over to Reverend Johnson, uh, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call, scheduled for Friday, March the 5th at 11 a.m. And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you so very much. Okay. Can, can, can you hear me, Kimberly? Yes. We can hear okay, you. Okay, I just had another voice. Mm. Okay. Let me, uh, I'm sorry, Reverend Johnson, let me try to remute again, and then um, you okay. have to hit star six. Okay, one second. Sure. Reverend Johnson, are you still with us? Okay, am I back now? Okay, nice and quiet. Okay. Okay, great. Thank, Thank you. you, and good morning, Kimberly, and um I join you in wishing Dr. G a very happy and a very blessed birthday, um, and thank also, as always, Dr. Zinnemann for sharing such um, rich and in-depth information. Uh, and so this morning, and good morning to everyone on the line, all of our community um, members and neighbors, we thank you for joining. As we come to the end of what is designated as African American History Month, I thought that I would bring our gathering today, bring closure to our time uh, by sharing a poetic prayer that is believed to have been written in 1935 by a little-known religious figure named William Massey, who was a graduate of Wilberforce University. I share this poetic prayer because I believe regardless of race, faith, ethnicity, or gender identity, it speaks to what many of us are praying for in this time of COVID pandemic. Uh, even as we are hopeful with regards to uh, the vaccine. It is entitled A Thanksgiving Prayer, and it comes from a book called Conversations with God, Two Centuries of Prayers by African Americans, written by Dr. James Melvin Washington. And so join with me now as I share this prayer. Lord, keep me from all bitterness, I pray, in these perplexing days of doubt and strain, when courage fails and faith and hope grow dim. Oh, let me not complain. Oh, save me from the ever-haunting fear that clutches at my heart with wild demands, that chills my love, that paralyzes faith, that blinds my eyes to all God's plans. 
Lord, let me not feel pity for myself, but go my way with laughter and good cheer, with head held high and eye and heart aglow, with strength to scorn each tear. Let me not feel that I alone do suffer. I would not doubt the wisdom of God's plan. The world has ever groaned and sought release from pain since time began. So let me face the future unafraid. Today is good. Tomorrow taunts with fear. Tomorrow I shall find but God's today to prove anew his presence near. May you each always feel the nearness of God's presence. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson, and thank you, everyone, as always, for listening. Have a safe and healthy weekend. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.